Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And we're back with a brand new series. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch, and a special thank you to Rabbi Tatz for joining us tonight. It's a big honor to have you both for the same series. The last one was extremely popular. This one is going to be a two-week series on the Maral of Prague. It's going to be a joint series, and we're going to start with a little background, if that's okay. So we're going to start with you, Rabbi Hirsch. I believe the subject matter was chosen partly because of an upcoming trip, am I right? Yes, we'd like to mention that uh, Rabbi Tatz and myself are organizing a Prague trip from the 3rd to the 6th of November over Shabbos, which uh, anyone's free to apply for. It should be quite an international event. So send an email to podcasts at jle.org.uk for further details. It's in two months' time. And this series now should hopefully whet your appetite. Right. Uh, sorry, I should have started from Rabbi Hirsch, seeing that we're focusing on you at the moment. Welcome back. Hope you had a nice summer. Yes. I've missed you immensely. Right. People have told us that we've they've caught up on previous episodes, the ones that they listen to quickly. We've had remarkable feedback from your Holocaust series that you did for Tisha B'Av. Well, we had 6,000 downloads in one week. Yeah, that was, so, it was very impressive. Right. We, did, we do enjoy getting your feedback. And many people have said that on their summer holidays, they had very long drives and they listened to, I was, I was surprised poor, that poor they managed to <laughs> imagine staying awake on a, someone told me he drove for 15 hours and he managed to cover, I think pretty much all the episodes right. you poor man poor wife and kids right even more so but yeah so in the summer you said you where did you go to again Eretzisrael Eretzisrael I'm yes. assuming you spent the whole week or two you were there in Yad Vashem as, as you would not only I also <laughs> probably bought 25 kilo of Sforim 25 kilos for him. Yes. You walk into a sforum shop and you ask for, can I have 10 kilo of this? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the way to fill your bookshelves, yeah. Okay, so back to Srabe Tats, we'll get to later, but just a bit of background to the Maral. Who was the Maral? So there's a lot of mystery that surrounds him, often because of his identification with the creation of a golem, but partly due to his very famous svarim, which I'm going to leave to Rabbi Tatz to expand upon, but they deal with topics of what you might call the unknown. And people assume that between these two things, they know about him. But there are actually lots of questions and very few places which have the correct answers. For instance, what was his name? Uh, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betzalel, except that Maharal doesn't have a letter Yud, so where does the Yehuda come from? Or when was he born? Uh, you know, if I gave you a 10-year window, does that help? Not necessarily. Who is his father? Who is he married to? Although, theoretically, that should be easy, considering he's buried in a double grave with his wife, Pearl, yet... Um, why was he arrested and imprisoned for months? What was his role in Prague, if any? I mean the morale of Prague. Yes, that's a misnomer, if ever there was one. 
Was he actually the founder of the institution of a Hebrew Kedisha in Europe? Why did his son not take over from him as rabbi in Prague, given that he was eminently qualified? And, of course, we need a word or two to keep you happy about the golem and intriguing related matters. So it's yeah, a, a I'm lot. not going to let you get away with not talking no, about the golem at no all. No problem with you this week, though. Right. So there's a lot to cover. And the morale didn't make it any easier by omitting in the introduction to his forum any personal details. So we assume he was born in Posen. We have no names of any of his teachers or where he studied. We do have some important biographical details from Rabbi David Gantz, who lived in Prague and who was a pupil of both the Maharal and the Ramah. But they deal with particular events, like his private meeting with the king, which we will get to. And there is also a full biography written probably about 100 years after he died, but it has gaps and errors. So we'll start with when he was born. It's interesting that two of the most important Ashkenazi figures of the 16th century have unknown dates of birth, the Ramah and the Maharal. In both cases, it was towards the beginning of the 1500s, the earliest date given for the Maharal is 1510, the latest 1525. But we simply don't know. The assumption is for the 1520s. But either way, he lived for at least 85 years and possibly 99, which accounts for some of his fame. You mean because such a long life was unusual at that time? Well, even on a more practical level, living for that long meant he had more time to write. You know, if Rashi of the Rambam had lived an extra 20 years, how much more would they have written? Did you write anything about why he merited such longevity? I'm not aware of it, but on the other hand, that's probably a question you'll have to ask Rabbi <laughs> Right. His name is Liwa or Love, one of those two, which may mean lion, and hence Yehuda fits into that. And in his signature, he does have the name Yehuda as well as the Love. In its entirety, when he signs, he writes Ben Betzalel. So the interesting thing is that his father is often described as being a Talmud Chacham, scholar, but described by later generations, not by the Maral himself, meaning that when the Maral signs, his father's name, Betzalel, does not have the word rabbi in front of it, or even sort of, you know, letter resh with an abbreviation, nor on his tombstone or any of his svarim. It's true that in the laws dealing with divorce with Gittin, the Ramah says you don't write rabbi in front of a name, but that's got nothing to do with the authorship of books. So he wasn't, by all accounts, a rabbinic figure, and that puts to bed the theory that his father taught him. It isn't actually known who taught the Maral Torah. And the first concrete information really comes with his first major rabbinate in 1553, so he's in his 30s. He is appointed the chief rabbi of Moravia, and he would be there for 20 years until 1573. It would actually be the Maral's longest lasting rabbinic position. He settles initially in Nicholsburg, and we can actually identify the house in which he lived. I've been into it, but he didn't remain in any one city continuously during those 20 years. We have evidence pointing to him having been in Prosnitz, in Osterlitz, based on documents with his name and title. How do we know where he lived in Nicholsburg? 
that was the rabbi's house all the way through. It was a position subsequently taken up by the Tosus Yontov and Rod Chabonet, the Rabbi Shmelka. I mean, many great people who we know by name were in position in situ in Nicholsburg, and that's where they all lived. Was that, was that a popular thing in the olden days, that they had a rabbinic house that was um, well, changed there's a, hands? Well, there's a mikvah in that building mm. still you can walk down some of the steps there and that means it was the communal building to some degree and the rabbi lived in there it wasn't that the whole house was his mm-hmm. now during these 20 years another area of note is that we tend to think of the maharal quite understandably primarily as a philosopher or an author but neither are true of his time in Moravia. He devotes himself primarily to educational and rabbinic duties. It's probably important to add a word or two about his character. Once again, we could be forgiven for thinking that the Morel's legacy and terror is in the area of theory, in ideas, not related to the practical world, which is very untrue because he was a strong fighter for ideals which included regulating the community, educational strategies for children and adults, fighting injustice, even if it was unpopular, and even if he was very unsuccessful and would pay a price for it. Are these things known? I've I've never heard of any of that. So they can be found by sort of going through his droshes or his halachic rulings. And he was quite strong-willed, which is either the result of or the cause for the strong positions he took. And therefore, while he is there, he codifies the Shai Takonis, the 311 regulations for Moravian Jewry, some of which he authored. He dealt with the halachic issue of drinking non-Jewish wine. Jewish travelers on the road would commonly do this in Moravia. He rules strongly against it as per halacha. And in fact, a hundred years later, we find that this ruling is reiterated in 1650, I think it is, repeating an earlier decision that no one who drank uh, wine of non-Jews could hold a communal office or lead services in any shul. And they append to that that this was originally created by the great Maharal. But he was actually quite unsuccessful in preventing this practice, both in Bohemia and Moravia, as opposed to Poland. He also takes a strong stand uh, trying to stamp out talking in shul. And with these two in mind, he introduced a blessing for those people who kept to both of these. It was called Nachash, the snake. Nesach, being Yain Nesach, this wine which you're forbidden to drink, and Sichas Chulin, speaking in Shul. He had a Mishaberach, so to speak, in Shul, and therefore it is almost certain that his Talmud, his pupil, the Tosus Yontov, was following in his footsteps when he created the Mishaberach to be found in present Sidurim about talking during davening, which is, I assume, what you wanted to ask. Yes. Right. <laughs> he has halachic writings from that period on the Tor, responsa, though many of his responsa were lost in the fire of 1689 in Prague, and some of it is still in manuscript form. But his strongest stand was in the field of how to teach Torah, what to teach, and at what age. He made two separate attempts to introduce a system, particularly regarding the study of Mishnah and Gomorrah, in order to bring about a change in what was 
currently being practiced, Pilpul, where students were encouraged to create edifices of theory, svara, to explain ideas and rules of the Gemara. But the Maral felt it was the worst possible way to approach the study of Talmud because it was completely unsystematic. It had no ground rules. In fact, he wrote as follows. Regarding the method of learning Torah, several years ago, I strengthened myself to remedy this situation, but this effort was unsuccessful because my contemporary said, let's follow the majority. So I tried again by writing to the communities of Poland and Lithuania, and I wasn't successful in this either. Alas for this shameful disgrace that we have deviated from the pattern of previous generations, all because of the claim that Pilpul sharpens the mind. How can they say it sharpens the mind when all it does is befuddle and make for total stupidity? And he felt that one of the root causes was learning Toysfus at too young an age. This is all because of their study of Toysfus. Would it not be better for them to first study the Talmudic text more thoroughly? And the reason they do this is because Toysfus has been printed on the margins. And he himself would eventually enable, in fact, finance a printing of a tractate of Talmud when he was in Prague, and he would omit Toysfus from the page. Wow. Was he successful in this attempt to... So, put it this way, by the end of the next century, many of his objections were widely accepted. But during his own lifetime, he was quite frustrated by the lack of change that was brought into being. And some of the changes were never accepted, like Tasis being, you know, omitted, so to speak. He felt that just as Pirke Ovis teaches, uh, we should have a firm foundation in Mishnah before we even think of learning Gomorrah. But, you know, that's not actually what necessarily happens. And uh, during these 20 years, according to the sort of accepted timeline, he got married And then after 20 years as a communal rabbi, he makes a move to Prague, possibly his first. He may have been there before he came to Moravia, we're not sure. This is in 1573, he comes to Prague not as a rabbi. The purpose was to teach and to publicize his methodology and philosophy of teaching Talmud and Mishnah. He felt strongly enough about it that he gave up the rabbinate to do this. Right, so you're saying he didn't come to Prague to become the Maral of Prague as we know him? No, he came to Prague because it was a significant centre of Jews, of trade routes. Rudolf II, the emperor, made Prague his imperial residence and capital of the empire, and he created the golden age of Prague. So that Prague flourished economically, culturally, brought in you know merchants, intellectuals, and Prague becomes a cosmopolitan city. And even though Catholicism was the religion, there was a policy of religious toleration until, well, until the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War in 1618. And that meant both for the sort of breakaway Christian sects and for the Jews in the last third of the 16th century, there was tolerance. So Rudolf II, he, he was a fan of the Jews. At least he wasn't anti-Semitic. Absolutely say. correct. So yeah. as soon as he died, that's when the... No, not necessarily, not immediately. It's still... Um, Five, six years later. Yeah, right, it was six. really the outbreak of war that made it happen. And Prague was also one of the largest communities, definitely in the Ashkenazi world, so the morale could teach there. He had a shul 
the Klausenschule, which was built for him, it was actually at the time a complex, which included two shuls and a base medrash, unlike its layout today. And it was a private institution. It was funded by Mordechai Meisels, and under the Maral's direction, it attracted students from all over. Uh, Rob David Gantz wrote of the impact that the Maral had as a teacher. He called him the, uh, the crown of the wise, the wonder of our generation. And that when he came to Prague, he trained many students, he writes. He founded a great and famous educational establishment where Torah was disseminated for 11 years and then four more, 15 years in all. And the Tosis Yontov writes that the morale raised hundreds of pupils, in particular through his emphasis on learning Mishnah. And the Tosis Yontov compares him to Rabiuda Nossi, the sort of the author of the Mishnah, in the impact that he had on the study of the Mishnah, which was active in learning groups long after his death. So, all in all, the Maral settles in Prague, but not in a rabbinic capacity, so to speak, and without the emphasis also on teaching. Kabbalah, Machshava. I mean, undoubtedly he must have done this, but none of his pupils who write about him talk of that area of teaching. It's quite ironic. So in that time, it doesn't sound like he was the legend that we know of him today. Now nope. he's the Maral of Prague. It sounds like he was almost the Maral in Prague at the time. Yep. And Prague was also a center of Jewish book printing. Italy had been closed down by that stage, so he issues his first work, Gorari, which is a commentary on the Chumash, in 1578. You mentioned earlier that he got married. Did you mention who he got married to? No. Nor will I yet. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the weddings of most of the Maral's children fall into that period. He had at least one son and five daughters. Actually, the Matsevis of at least four of his daughters are in the old cemetery in Prague today. No one is aware of this. No one visits them, but they are there. And they married people from Prague. In 1581, we have an entry in the registry that tells us that um, Rabbi Love purchased a house, which was probably in Shiroka Street. And the house, in fact, stood until they made renovations to the former ghetto area at the end of the 19th century. So he is there in 1573. We can now fast forward for the next 11 years. That's what he's doing. By 1584, the morale was probably the greatest scholar in Prague. And having spent more than a decade there, it was expected, assumedly, that he would succeed Rubyitzchak Melnik as chief rabbi of Prague after his death in 1583, especially because immediately following Rubyitzchak's death, the Maral did assume several of his duties. So he is asked to give the Shabbos Shuvah Drosha in 1583, which is traditionally one of the rights of the chief rabbi. But subsequently, after his drosha, the election didn't turn out his way. In fact, his brother-in-law gets the post of chief rabbi of Prague. Why? So, let's analyse this. It was an impressive speech. We still have it. It placed emphasis on caring for the poor and showing respect to scholars. Now, it's true that um, 
Part of the rejection could have been because the Maral rejected Pilpul, whereas his brother-in-law was an advocate. But the most obvious reason was his strong criticism of the social situation. Very strong opinions. He took a stand against the use of slander, in particular the accusation of what was called Nadla, which is in essence an accusation of illegitimate lineage, Mamzerus. It existed across Europe. It was made possible by upheavals, revolutions, forced migrations, which caused families to be torn apart and never meet again. And basically, the Nadler accusation alleged that a brother and a sister were separated by exile at a very young age and unbeknownst to each other, ended up marrying each other and that all their offspring were illegitimate. Now, in today's world, you can trace through DNA or records, but back then there's no paper trail. And this was a terrible accusation. It, it destroyed families. The Morales family itself had to deal with this accusation personally. Who was going around making these accusations? What? Sometimes people of power or of wealth who wanted to get rid of rivals, and sometimes just maliciously to get back at others. It was Lashon Hara at its extreme. Mm. So no one was doing it for real halachic reasons? No, or? no, 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 no. There was a false accusation, as I said, against the Maral, against his mother. And they became the victims of this malicious gossip of being illegitimate. And it took one of the greatest rabbinic authorities of the time, Rabbi Shleiman Luria, the Marshal in Poland, who stood up in defense of the family's honor, to confirm the legitimacy of the Maral and his three brothers. And, and this response of the Marshal is printed. You know, it's Nishalti minanoshim gedolim lachavais dati. I've been asked for my opinion that shehutziu kol v'shemra al mishpocha, that they have slandered this family. It was very real. And in 1583, during this Shabbat Drosha, the Maral pronounced a public ban, a cherem, on anyone who made this accusation, he calls 10 Talmidei Chachomim to the Bima, gives them each a Sefer Torah, and makes it very clear he will not tolerate it. Now, he's not yet the rabbi, but it does give you an idea of how outspoken and fearless he was when he felt something needed to be done. Well, so if the people behind the accusations were the powerful, wealthy members of the community, then I guess that's not what they wanted to hear from their new wrath. Exactly. They weren't going to be dictated to by any rabbi, so he leaves Prague. He becomes the rabbi in Posen from 1584 to 1588. He continues teaching, writing. He returns to Prague around 1589. Maybe now he will become the rabbi in Prague. He's 70. And it's now, during this period, that he is involved in one of the most famous events of his life, his audience with Emperor Rudolf II, which Rudolf Gantz reports, and he says, in 1592, our emperor, the righteous, praiseworthy Rudolf, in his abundant grace, summoned and invited to himself the gone Lever, son of Betzalel, and received him kindly, spoke to him face to face as a person speaks to his friend. As to the nature of this event in Adar 352, which is the 26th of February 1592, they are hidden, sealed, and unknown. Yet, even with all this praise and the profile, 
He's the only one who gets this. He is still not elected to rabbinic position in Prague. This is nine years after his first attempt. And that role is given to Mordechai Jaffa, the famous Levush. And the morale goes back to Posen for another four years. So, right, why is he the morale of Prague? Okay, <laughs> we will leave it there for this week. Firstly, a reminder of the Prague trip, 3rd to 6th of November, and a reminder of the question still not answered. Why was he arrested and imprisoned, and where? Why didn't his son take over from him? Did he actually found the communal Hebra Kedisha? And one more question, who was his other wife? Well, thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch, for that. As always, you've left us with a lot of questions to be answered. It seems like that's a favorite technique of yours, but that's for next week, I guess. So now we've had an overview of the first part of the Maral's life. I'd like to now turn to Rabbi Tetz. Thank you very much. You've been sitting, waiting there patiently. Firstly, welcome back. It's a big honor and privilege that you're with us again. Thank you for taking your time. So we've heard the fascinating history part, but what our listeners would like to know is what makes the teachings of the Maral unique? How do we distinguish, in your words, the Maral from other authors of Torah commentary, which there are so many of? Thank you, Rabbi Mena. Thanks for having me on your podcast. And it's a pleasure to collaborate again with Rabbi Hirsch, who's a master of Jewish history. Yes, the Maharal was an outstanding, gigantic personality who came at a time, a watershed moment in Jewish history, and I dare say he was actually part of the reason for the, the watershed. He broke completely new ground, formulated a new way of thinking about things, of revealing Torah in style and content, and really laid the groundwork for the next four or five hundred years of Torah learning, particularly in the area of uh, what we call Ashkafa, or deeper wisdom, or Jewish outlook, whatever, whatever words you'd like. Although, of course, he wrote at a masterful level about halachic topics as well, of course, tshuvas and so forth. So, yes, he was, a, again, I would say a watershed personality. He also came at a time when Europe was, in a, in a sense, waking up, you know, from the Dark Ages. As our Hirsch has uh, made plain his history, he lived through the 1500s, argument about, indeed, whether he was born in 1512 or 1525, whichever it was, died in 1609. But he spanned the 1500s, the 16th century. He was a friend of Tycho Brahe, who was probably the most famous astronomer of the time. Universities were just getting going. It was the time of the very earliest of the Italian universities. So Europe was really waking up. Of course, it would come to flourish in in, in tremendous way during the time of the Ramchal 200 years later, which we discussed in previous podcasts. But he really lived at that watershed moment in intellectual awakening. And what he did was he introduced a way of revealing things in the Jewish world at an incredible level of depth. It is true that, of course, in previous generations, tremendous depth was revealed as well. But the style of the Rishonim, by which I mean the 10th to the 15th centuries, was very closed. You know, a tremendous amount would be packed into a line or a word. You needed to be a master yourself in order to open them. And the Maral came to open up those areas. Was that deliberately so, that the Rishonim wrote that way? Or, was that, or were they just on a different level? Yes, deliberate, but in terms of their level. In other words, the reason the Rishonim, the Rishonim wrote very briefly is because they were talking to people who knew how to open up a statement of this, which means that, you know, the way we think about it is that the generations decline in intellectual power and Jewish wisdom. So if you're speaking to a highly intelligent friend of yours, half a word is enough. When you're speaking to a slow-thinking 10-year-old, you have to speak a lot. And therefore, the convention in the early generations was to speak much more briefly. You don't word, waste words that are unnecessary. But the Maral introduced, he was on the cusp, really, of the, what we call the generations of the Achronim, which is the last five centuries. 
The date we usually give to that transition is 1490 to 1500, the time of the Barbanel, the Yitzchak of Barbanel, 1492. That's really probably the borderline between the Shonim and Achronim. So the Maral really comes very, very much at the beginning of the time of the Achronim. And that's why you'll find that he argues unbelievably with the Shonim. He takes exception to some things that Tosfa says, you know, that's like unthinkable. I mean, you know, no one else could... Part of the reason he was very soon after the generation, and a part of the reason, of course, he was just big enough to feel that he could do that. There's no absolute written rule that you cannot argue with the previous generation, but of course, that's Torah convention. And he really was of an order of magnitude that enabled him to do that. So his main contribution, looking back, I would say, is that he introduced a whole world of depth of Torah, and in a particular style. I would say his style in this field was more teaching Kabbalah without using Kabbalistic technicalities and terminologies. He does occasionally, he does occasionally talk about spheres and so forth, but really, by and large, his style was to couch Kabbalistic teachings in, let's call it, philosophical or general terms, which means you don't need to be a Kabbalist or have technical background in that esoteric wisdom to understand what he's saying. He brings it down, he bridges, in a way, the world of technical Kabbalah and the world of practical, philosophical, deep understanding of things, so that without knowing it while you're learning his material, you're actually learning Kabbalah. So yes, he was groundbreaking in that way, and he wrote voluminously. Today, if you buy a set of Maharals, you know, it runs to dozens of volumes, dozens of volumes. I think the, the original set with no notes at all, the conventional one that we had till a few years ago, is I think about 20 volumes, which is unbelievable. Uh, detailed commentary on Chumash, a detailed work on, on Pesach and on on Shuas, you know, unbelievable library of works that he wrote. You know, Rav Mena, one of the great things about Jewish learning is that you don't have to take it on, on hearsay. Somebody tells you who is very great. When it comes to Jewish learning, you can explore it yourself, you know. When people tell you the Gaon of Vilna was very great, or much later of Moshe Feinstein, it's not like you have to trust somebody's opinion. You can actually learn through the works yourself. These stand the test of time and the scrutiny of the greatest minds of subsequent history. So when the Maro left us 20 volumes, you know, of, of detailed work. And of course, today, our very good friend, Rabbi Yeshua Hartman, who is probably the preeminent expert on Maral in the world today. In fact, I think I can safely say the only person I ever met who knew about, more about Maral than he did was Ramash Shapira, who was f- most famous for his Maral knowledge. Not that that's correct, by the way. Of course, he was a master of so much. But somehow in the popular imagination, he became known as the expounder of Maral. And Rabbi Hartman, of course, has published, again, already dozens of volumes on Maral. And uh, on virtually every page, his footnotes are more copious than the, than the Maral text itself, which, of course, is a fantastic service. And I must say that Rabbi Hartman often brings Rabbi Moshe Shaber's insights into Maral. So we are privileged to have his writings. We're privileged to have wonderful commentaries in the modern era. And most notably is that he teaches you how to think about these subjects. Isn't that always the danger when you simplify very philosophical the Kabbalah that it's just going to be misconstrued and abused? It's become almost a fad Kabbalah today that it's been so much internationally like a, a fashion almost. Yes. Well, let's put it this way. He didn't simplify it. When I say that he used a new language, he's translating it into different terminologies by far, far from simplifying. On the contrary, what he's doing is giving you the richness. Let me put it like this. If you learn technical Kabbalistic wisdom, you're learning about very, very esoteric connections between higher worlds with very technical terminology. It's very, very difficult and sometimes extremely complex and convoluted. What the Maral does is not so much, not, not simplifying, but he's translating it into a language that is more philosophical. Let me give you an example. I'll give you an example. 
we were talking previously, you, you and I, about the question of whether Maharal actually gave a system. Did he give a system? Indeed, he gave a system of thinking. The truth about his new system of thinking is that it's the old Kabbalistic system, but he translates it into terms that you can grasp. I'll give you an example. You know, in Kabbalah, one of the most basic ideas is that we have all elements in the world made of three components. Let's call them the right, the left, and the center, or the male, the female, and the bond between them. Many ways you can put this. The right is always what we call, if we're speaking technical Kabbalistic language, we call it chesed, which means really conventionally translated as kindness or loving kindness, but chesed really means unlimited giving. In fact, the Torah uses the word chesed even for immoral relationships, because that's unlimited giving. It's not knowing where to say no. So chesed is really the right hand and the concept of unlimited giving. Also in Kabbalistic terminology or thinking, it is the male. The male is the beginner of a relationship, right? For example, the male in the biological world, the mammalian world, is contributing seed by the billion, virtually unlimited. The left-hand side is the female, which is the sense of limitation, making finite and bringing into a practical and a real world. In contradistinction to the male, the woman produces only one egg at a time, complete opposite. In fact, the word female in Hebrew, nekeva, means to limit and make specific. So the point of origin is infinite, potential is always endless, and the point of application is always finite. So we call the one chesed, the right-hand side, and the other one we call din or gvura, which is the left-hand side. And of course, the, 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 the obvious problem is when you have a, a contradiction between these two extremes is how do you put them together? And that's the third, which is the central point which we call tiferes. Your, our listeners might be interested to know that the word tiferet, again, which is a technical Kabbalistic terminology, is based on the root pe'er. The word pe'er in Hebrew means beauty, glory or beauty. What does beauty have to do with the combination of right and left sides? That's exactly what beauty is. Beauty is the harmonizing of opposite elements. If you paint a painting blue and you add more blue paint, you don't make it more beautiful, you just make it more blue. It's the contrasting colors, the sweeping opposites of highs and lows music also. It's the contrasting notes that harmonize instead of conflict. And you and I both know it's much easier to make a mess and a conflict than it is to make a harmony. So it's the correct putting together of right and left, which is not really a third element. It's really just the correct connection between right and left, which is the which is the third point, which is called Tiferes. The word pair, incidentally, if you reverse the letters, rearrange the letters, it spells Rofei. Rofei is a healer. Why? Because a healer is one who can balance unbalanced forces, put together the unbalanced right and left in the center, and bring them together. That's the, that's the connection. Now, that's the Kabbalistic idea. How does Maral put it? So Maral put it in terms like, I'll give you an example. Here's a classic question that the Maral asks. And when you see a question like this, you know, you kick yourself and you think, well, why didn't I think of that question? In his introduction to the tractate of Pirke Alvois, Ethics of the Fathers, right, the Maral begins with a very, very embarrassingly simple question. Why is it called Alvois? Right, Pirke Alvois, why is it called that? Jewish tradition, we name things very specifically. So the general answer to that question is, well, you know, Alvois, these are the ethics of the fathers, you know, grandfatherly advice, wise, sage advice from a previous generation. That no doubt is true, but it's a very general and vague answer. The Maral as always, teaches you a principle, and his principle is illuminating, but again, always true to an original source, always true to original source. And the moral says like this, what do we mean when we talk about avos in Judaism, avot, what do we mean? So the Gemara, go back to our source, ain avos elashlosha, there are only and always three fathers in the world. Right? Who are those? 
Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Who are the three? Avram on the right-hand side, he's the, after all the origin of Judaism. Yitzhak, the one on the left who's bound, the, the, the left-hand or limiting side. What is the greatness of, of Yitzhak? Akedus Yitzhak, what does that mean? How he's bound on the altar. He's held in and limited. And he's the one who's, who's service of God, which means binding yourself in service. And of course, once you have the father and son relationship, the father who begins on the right-hand side, the, the origin of potential, and the son who comes to the world to give that form and shape and limitation, what's the perfect balance between these? The third personality, which is Yaakov, who's always depicted in the center of the body. He's identified with Shabbos, for example, which is a harmonizing of all elements of the week. Yaakov is identified with Torah, Perhaps most famously is identified with truth, because truth is always a harmony of two opposites. Right? If I tell you a statement like, I say to you, the library is open on Wednesday, and then I say to you, the library is closed on Wednesday. Problem. Till the third verse comes along and tells you, the library is open in the afternoons and closed in the mornings. Ah, so the third statement harmonizes two to show you they were both in fact true. That's Yaakov, the man of truth. Says the Maral, the reason Avis is called Avis is because the whole structure of Pika Avis is all sets of three. Think about it. The world stands on three things. The very first statement. They said three things. As you go through Pika Avis, it's unbelievable when you start seeing it. Virtually every statement there is put forward in three components. And says the Maral, as he takes you through his commentary on Avis, note carefully. The first statement is always what's called the Nasi, which is the president of the Sanhedrin, let's call it. Then there's the statement of the Av based Din, Din on the left-hand side. And then there's the third opinion, which harmonizes them. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the world stands on three things. One on the right, one on the left, one in the center. So Pirka Amos is not general grandfatherly advice. It's a very, very tightly honed, controlled pattern right, of wisdom, always based on our deepest principle of wisdom, which is right-hand side unlimited, left-hand side limitation, central point which harmonizes them. And the teaching of Pirka Amos is done that way. So what has the Maral done? He showed you a principle. He's not doing any fancy footwork or bringing in anything new. He's going back to a source, quoting the Gemara, showing you the principle, and then showing you how Pekavis works. And not a word of Kabbalah. All he's done is showing you the three fathers of the Jewish people, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. They represent three different spiritual qualities. He's not using any Kabbalistic, esoteric terminology. And once he explains those to you, he's then showing you how Pirkei Avis, in fact, manifests those. So is this a teaching of a way to think? Absolutely. It's a very, very tightly disciplined way of learning how to use Jewish principles to open up Jewish subjects. Wow. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Rabbi Tatz and Rabbi Hirsch. And again, very much appreciate you coming back. We, there was incredible feedback on the last special that we did. So thank you again. And we'll see you next week for, I believe, a continuation where we're going to, my guest with Rabbi Hirsch, go a bit deeper into the history and with yourself, Rabbi Tatz, to perhaps share an idea of the Marel and go a bit deeper into that. So thank you again. And as usual, any feedback, comments, questions can be sent to podcasts at jd.org.uk. Thank you both.